Well, John and Kathleen are. They left on vacation today, I think. And so I get to slide in here and bring the message this morning. I'm excited to do so. And I'm thankful for guys like Jacob and ladies like Charity and our other worship team. Let's slide in and lead that. Man, our church is blessed with a lot of different people that, that love to serve, that God has blessed and given ability to serve. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, I, I, want, I get to speak on something this morning that I'm, I'm really kind of interested in and passionate about. Uh, it's the issue of worship. So we're in this series, Keeping in Step with the Spirit. And part of that is, is worshiping in the Spirit. So we're going to talk some today about that. And I want to start off this morning kind of, I don't know about dispelling a myth, um, but there's too often I think, maybe this is just a pet peeve of mine, but too often I think that when we talk about church, um, we talk about the music time as the only part that's worship. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you guys have engaged in several kinds of worship already this morning. Um, when you uh, contributed to the offering, you gave of your tithes and offering. You worshiped in that way. When you hugged a brother or sister, asked them about their week, told them what God was doing in your life when you fellowshiped together, you were worshiping the Lord. See, music in the church is worship, but that's not the only worship in the church. I just, I just kind of want to emphasize that this morning. First off, before we go anywhere else, um, is prayer not worship? Is reading scripture not worship? Is loving your brother or sister not worship? Um, kids, let me ask you this question. How does a bird worship God? You know, because you were in first service. And it, wh- how does a bird worship God? You want to say it, Tabby? No, she doesn't want to say it now. By being a bird. A bird worships God by doing what birds do, right? By singing and chirping and, and pooping on cars and, and having more bird babies. This is how a bird worships its creator. How, how does a flower worship its creator? By blooming in season, right? By doing what God created it to do. And there's the key. According to Isaiah 43, verse 7, people were created to glorify God. So when people do what they were created to do, all that they do is worship. When a bird does what it was created to do, everything it's doing is worship the creator. It's worshiping the creator and doing that. Okay? Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not comparing you and I as people to plants and animals. God, we're a special creation of God, okay? But what I am saying is that when we do what we're created to do, we're worshiping. Um, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, Paul is kind of ending an argument. They're arguing about food that they should or shouldn't eat. And he ends this argument by saying, whether you eat or drink, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it what? All for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Later on in, in Colossians, he is encouraging the church to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly, uh, encouraging one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Encouraging your brothers and sisters, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
ministering to one another, encouraging your brothers and sisters in that way, is worship. Okay? There's sufficient evidence in all of Scripture to convince us that our entire lives are spent in worship of something. You will worship something. Atheists who believe there is no God worship themselves, in essence. Okay? You will worship something. Worship absolutely includes singing, as we just got through doing, but it, can't, it is not limited to that, and it shouldn't be in our minds or in our practice. Today, I hope to help us understand uh, the, the nature of true worship, the danger, some dangers of false worship, and then also where the source of our worship comes from. You've heard the term painting with a broad brush. We're going to do that this morning. Um, I don't have time to get into a lot of details. I'd like to at some point, but this morning we're going to kind of paint with a broader brush in this. In order, this is something I want a, a foundational statement for really the rest of what I want to say. In order to truly worship God, God must be known. Right? Charity and I were talking right before the worship service, this second one, and she said they were in Leviticus as a family, and God is saying over and over, here's what I want you to do, and I want you to do it because I am the Lord. We cannot worship God as he calls us to and as we ought to if we don't know him. And he cannot be known apart from Christ and the shedding of his blood. Right? Because Hebrews teaches us that Jesus is the exact representation of God. Perfect representation of God. So God, we can't worship if we don't know God. And God can't be known apart from his revelation in his son. Okay? That's foundational to where we're going. Here is a, if you're a note taker, I like to take notes. If you're a note taker, write this down. Here's a good definition of worship. I didn't come up with this, but I think it's helpful for what we're talking about. True worship is the adoration of a redeemed people occupied with God himself. True worship is the adoration of a redeemed people occupied with God himself. See, unbelievers, they see worship as something that God demands, that he extracts from his people, whether they like it or not, and that it's burdensome to his people. When in fact, when we truly understand God and start to understand worship, that couldn't be further from the truth. Worship comes out because of the joy of Christ in our hearts. It's not something that God has to extract and pull out of us with force. It's something that we freely give back to him. Okay? So I've heard it said that worship is kind of, among God's people, is kind of like the same relationship as a dog that licks his master's hand. Really, probably a better way to say it is that it is children intentionally and gratefully turning to their father in love. That's all that it is. So this is worship. Being assured of our acceptance into God's family, adoring God for what he has made Christ to be for us and what he has made us to be in Christ. Those things combined spur us on to worship. So if our definition is, is helpful, true worship is the adoration of a redeemed people occupied with God himself, do we really understand what we've been redeemed from? That's the first part. This is where true, the source of our true worship comes from. Do we understand 
what we've been redeemed from. This is why Paul, the Apostle Paul, in much of his writings, he goes to great lengths to help us understand who we are apart from Christ. I mean, really the first three chapters of Romans hit the nail on the head, corralling us all into this group of people almost without hope on our own. In Ephesians 2, in just a few short verses, he says this about us apart from Christ. He says, we're dead in our sins. We're following Satan. We're children of wrath. We're separated from God. We're without hope, period. In Romans 3, he says, we are unrighteous. We do not fear God. We do not understand God. We don't seek after God on our own. In chapter 5 of Romans, he says, we are weak, ungodly, enemies of God. These are not easy things to hear. But are they not true? See, we talk about we talk about this sort of thing often here at Ramsey Creek. You hear John talking about it. You hear Jason talking about it. You hear other guys speaking and talking about this, who we are apart from Christ. And we recognize that it might bother you. It might bother people. To hear that you are an enemy of God apart from Christ is not a pleasant thought. That you are without hope on your own you kind of start to stiffen up a little bit and think, well, wait a second here. Not that bad. You're going to hear us talking about our true condition, and I don't want you to tune us out. And, and, and we remind ourselves of this truth for a reason, primarily to destroy the idol of self and exalt the purpose of Christ, that he came to die. So we remind ourselves of our true condition apart from him to knock us down to where we ought to be and to lift Christ up to where he ought to be. Now, Paul tells the Corinthians that he's going to preach Christ crucified, even though he knows doing that is going to be a stumbling block to people. He knows that when he preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified, that it's going to bother some people. We know when we preach that message today, it might bother some people that hear it. And yet, we should have the same attitude as Paul and say, I'm going to do it anyway, because this is what we've been called to do. He knew it would bother people, and just to put it bluntly, he did not care. (laughs) He didn't care. Now, I'm not saying we should go around offending people just because we don't care. I'm saying we preach the truth in love, And we leave the consequences, we leave the results up to God. Okay? Um, Yeah, enough about that. Uh, So this is recapping. This is is who we are. This is what we are apart from Christ. Dead, weak, ungodly, separated enemies. This is what I am apart from Christ. If you believe that you can be religious enough or good enough, for God to love you, then you are deceiving yourselves, calling God a liar, and mocking Jesus on the cross. Because you're saying that you're going to get to heaven your own way, and you never needed Jesus to take your sin on himself and die for it. That's what you're saying when you say, I don't, I don't need this, I'm not that bad, I can get to God on my own. All paths lead to the same place. This is what you're saying. The necessity of the cross was not there. It was not necessary. I'm going to do it myself. I'll do it my way. You can 
attend church services every week, have the most reverent attitude when you walk in the door, listen respectfully to the preacher, join in the singing, put money in the collection plate as it's passed, but have you really worshipped God? I think that it's possible to participate in these things on a regular basis and your heart still be far from God. And this is the danger of false worship that I want to talk about. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is from Mark chapter 7. It says Jesus talking about the Pharisees. They were insisting that his disciples, they were, they were pushing legalism, basically. And uh, his disciples weren't matching up to that. And so they were trying to trap Jesus. And he says this about them. He's quoting um, from the Old Testament. And he says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is not worship at all, is it? I think, and in many cases, being religious is actually more of a danger than being non-religious. Because people that think that they can get to God on their own by doing these religious acts have a huge amount of pride to overcome in reaching them with the gospel. Uh, Older man who's no longer with us named A.W. Pink says, religion is the devil's anesthetic for making lost sinners feel comfortable and easy in their guilty distance from God. Religion does not save you. Being a Baptist does not save you. A relationship with the true God of the Bible will save you. In Ezekiel's time, it was written like this. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people and they hear your words, but they do not do them. Now listen to this. For with their mouth, they show much love but their hearts pursue their own gain. So here's my question for you to evaluate. When you come to worship, are you pursuing your own gain? Now, obviously, you guys aren't making money by being here. This is not what gain means here. When you come to worship, are you pursuing your own gain? Are you only looking what you're, for what you're going to get out of it? How do you rate a Sunday morning worship gathering? How would you rate it? Well, you know, there was, there was some dead space this morning in between the announcements and the songs. You know, that could have been better. So, um, you know, we'll knock that down a few. You know, I didn't really even like the songs that we sang that much. They were too loud. You know, we didn't sing enough hymns today. We sang too many hymns last week. You know, how do you rate a worship service? Well, the preacher was all right, but he talked way too long. You know, I agree with what he says, but he should have told some more jokes or, you know, more stories to make it funnier. How do we rate a worship gathering together? What criteria do we use to judge it on? Your feelings? Maybe what a bigger church might be doing down the road? Flip over to John with me. The book of John, Gospel of John, chapter 12. We're given a, a wonderful picture of the attitude we ought to have. John 12, 
John chapter 12, starting with verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. We'll stop there. You guys know the rest of this story. The disciples, specifically Judas, get all up in arms and they say, oh, wait a second, we should have, this was so expensive, we should have sold that and given the money to the poor. And Jesus rebukes him. Um, but we want to look at what Mary does here. In one verse, we're given a lot of information about her attitude and how, who she understands God to be, Jesus, God in the flesh. A.W. Pink says this about this text, which I think is helpful. Talking about Mary, she came not to hear a sermon, though the prince of preachers was there. To sit at his feet and hear his words was not her object now, blessed as that was in its proper place. She came not after a week's toil for refreshment, though none knew better the blessed springs of refreshment which are in him. No, she came to pour out upon him that which she had long treasured up, which was the most valuable of all her earthly possessions. The Lord filled her thoughts. He had won her heart and absorbed all her affections. She had eyes for no one but him. Adoration and homage were now her one thought, to pour out her heart's devotion before him. That's what worship is. It's not coming to receive anything from him, but to give what we have and who we are to him. It's the pouring out of our heart's adoration, our heart's love, our heart's praise, And here is the difficult but revealing question we need to ask ourselves. If I come to church only to to get my batteries recharged, who is the object of my worship? Me. Because it's about me feeling better. It's about me getting my batteries recharged. It's about me. If, If we come to church to feel better, We are the object of our worship. We are idolaters, both the idol and the idolater. But the incredible truth in all of this is that when we recognize the great and unsurpassing worth of Christ, what we have been redeemed from, we can't help but worship. When we see our past, when we know what Christ pulled us out of, we will worship and we will be refreshed. In God's time and to God's extent. See, the difference is the object and motivation of our worship. Who are we worshiping? Why are we worshiping them? We can't truly worship God for who he is if we can't get past who we are. And that's on both ends of the spectrum. If you can't get over your past and can't ever believe that God would love a sinner like you and you keep knocking yourself down because of that, you're never going to be able to worship God for who he really is. On the other side, if you're too proud and arrogant, thinking that you're better than you really are, you're not going to be able to worship God for who he really is. We can't then get past who we are if our motivation to worship is just to feel better. We worship because he's worthy and we're not. We may receive a blessing in our time of worship, and we may not, but would that make God any less loving? less caring, less gracious. Now, 
There's a lot to be said on this whole topic. And I would have liked to have spent some time talking about um, the history of worship. Maybe we'll do that one day. Um, about how man is, I think, a social being, doesn't like to live separately, which I think shows us the necessity of gathering together as the body and corporate worship. About how from the beginning of the Bible down to the end, you can trace a line of public worship all the way from Cain and Abel to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the apostles, the early church, to Ramsey Creek 2017, all the way to us. There's a thread that you can follow of corporate worship. It's important. It'd be nice to spend some time together thinking about the reasons we're told to worship together. It bears public testimony to the, to the world of the redemption that's there through Christ. It helps to strengthen us, to cheer us, encourage us, and to comfort one another by gathering together to worship. We are trained and prepared for the general assembly of heaven where it's going to be a joyful, never-ending celebration. I would have liked to talk about specifically what our worship services should include. Several things. They should include the preaching of the word. I think it has to be central. I'm, I'm the music guy here, but the preaching of the word is central to a worship service. I think it's that way because if, if we make little of the sermon or we kind of push it into a corner and limit, well, you know, attention spans are only this long. So if you go past that, you're doing more harm than I've heard that said before. You're doing more harm than good. If that's our attitude, man, we are, we cannot be considered a scriptural system or one that's likely to have the blessing of God. There should be in our worship services, prayer. If, and let me just say this quickly about that. If you are just listening, if you're just sitting there listening to the prayers as people are praying or as we're singing, if you're just listening and you're not participating or involved, then you're crippling yourself, really. There should be public reading of Scripture in each worship gathering. A congregation that only hears or hears little of the Bible in its worship service is very likely to become dependent on its leaders. We see that in history, right? They took the, the word of God out of the hands of the people and they were dependent on priests to reach God. That's not the church. There should be regular use of the sacraments in our worship time. And so we see people be baptized. We, we share in the Lord's Supper from time to time. We celebrate these things with joy. Our worship services should include public praise of singing. Now, there's huge debates on whether that should be a full band or just a piano or no, no instruments at all. I don't particularly care. I think you can worship God a cappella just as well as you can with a full band. So you'll see from time to time here at church where we don't have a full band. I've actually had the crazy idea. We've not done this yet, but I've had the crazy idea of doing different styles of worship in different locations. Uh, maybe next week we'll meet out in the yard and we'll sing a cappella, Or the next week we'll meet down in the basement and we'll just sing with a guitar. Because worship isn't about this, the place or the musical instrument. It's about the object of our worship. 
think about this. This is an interesting thought that the Lord gave me this week. Um, preaching, proclaiming the name of Christ, praying, um, reading even, one day will no longer be needed. I don't need to preach in heaven. Someone far better than me is going to be there. <laughs> but we see from the book of Revelation that we'll all get to sing. We'll all get to praise. It's the only part of our worship that's never going to stop. Now, that doesn't minimalize the other things, but it shows the importance of praise. We could have gone into a lot of that in more detail. Maybe we will one day. But even if we did that, even if I laid it out really well, which I probably wouldn't do, but even if I laid it out really well and you understood it, I still think we could miss it. I still think that it would do us little good if we still have a diminished view of the greatness of God. All of that background in history won't mean a lot. But I believe the early church knew this well. I think that they figured it out because they were so grateful. They were so full of awe of what God was doing in their life that they met in the temple. They met in each other's homes. They met, I mean, it says day by day in Acts. It says day by day they were doing these things. That's important. Should we be any different today? Now, up until now, I haven't really connected worship with fellowship. But I think that they're so closely integrated that we have, I have to say something about it. Um, and let me challenge us in this. When you fellowship, when you get together with other believers, don't just, and I, this is a struggle for me too, but don't just surface conversation your way through it. Start talking about what God's doing in your life. Start asking them about what God's doing in their life. Someone told me, talked to me after the message this morning. They said, you know, I've been asking people for a while, what, God, what is God doing in your life? And they said, I'm really sad about how many people don't know how to answer that. Let's make that a regular part of our conversation. What's God doing in your life? Here's what he's doing in mine. Speak of the cross together as though your life depends on it. Guess what? It does. <laughs> it does. Don't just gloss over it like it's this truth that we learned in Sunday school years ago and it's not a big deal anymore. It is. Without the cross, you are without hope. So check out this awesome truth. Um, I think this is neat. Genuine fellowship. When we love one another, we're challenging each other in the word, asking God, you know, asking what God's doing in their life. Genuine fellowship moves the body of Christ to worship. And when we are really worshiping the Lord together, that's going to move the body of Christ to fellowship. They go hand in hand. They go together. So let me encourage you again. Our brother Mike touched on this, uh, preached about this several months ago in the idea of fellowship from, from Acts chapter 2. Let me repeat that encouragement again. It doesn't take a lot of effort to look around and see somebody you haven't talked to in a while at church. And it doesn't take too much more effort to say, hey, why don't you stop by our house for dinner one night this week? Well, let's, let's sit down with our calendars and let's look at when our kids aren't busy and let's get together. Let's do this. And in doing so, we worship. And when we worship, we're going to be motivated to go and fellowship. Now, let me kind of give a disclaimer here. Um, as an under-shepherd of Ramsey Creek and part of the leadership here, I can tell you it is 
an immense and wonderful task to find out from God's word how we are to do things. It's a joy and a challenge to implement the things that scripture reveals that we as a church should be doing. But you guys know this. We don't do it perfectly. Sometimes we don't even do it all that well. But uh, part of, I want to read something um, from J.C. Ryle. This is a little pamphlet on, hit, on worship. I couldn't say this any better myself, so let me just read it. He says this. I admit with sorrow and humiliation that faith and hope and life and worship of God's people are all alike full of imperfections. To be continually separating and seceding from churches because we detect blemishes in their administration is not the act of a wise man. Now, accountability is right. Please understand me when I say that. Accountability is right. Scripture makes that clear. And we welcome thought thoughtful and beneficial conversations. We want to talk these things out with you as a people, but sometimes we just get it wrong. And and for those moments, we apologize, but we, I want to say, you know, as we hold hands in this together, you're going to feel ours are pretty rough. We've got rough hands in this, but join with us and let's move on lifting up Christ in our church, doing things the way scripture informs us of doing them, even if it's not like we've done it before. Even if it seems strange, let's believe God in his word and say, let's do it. We don't have to wait for a vote to obey God's word. Okay. So here's my question now, coming to an end. Have you been redeemed? We've looked at some of the things we need to be redeemed from, who we are apart from Christ. Have you been redeemed? If you have, then worship in your life. Worship is a lifestyle. Don't be puffed up. Don't be holier than thou. It is possible to have really proper doctrine and still be mostly useless to the Lord. Um, Turn to Romans chapter 11 with me. I want to see an evidence of this in Romans chapter 11 with the Apostle Paul. Verse 33. So a year or two ago, we preached through the book of Romans. And the, the sermon series was called Sound Doctrine. And we looked, because Paul lays out, man, just foundations of the Christian faith, of what we believe verse in and verse out here in, in the book of Romans. And he stops here after 11 chapters and he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. What does this what does this sound like to you? Worship. So here's here's the truth. If your theology does not cause you to worship, you're doing it wrong. If what you believe about God does not cause you to fall on your face and give him praise, then you don't really believe the God of the Bible. Because understanding, real understanding of God 
seeing the glory of God and the beauty of Christ will always result in worship. We see it here. After all these wonderful doctrinal statements that Paul is giving and saying this is who God is, this is how we should be, this is everything, he stops and he worships because you can't not. You can't not worship unless you've never been redeemed. If you've never been redeemed, if you've never been saved, you can't worship because your heart is still far from God. You have not been united to God in Christ. And we already said God cannot be known apart from Christ. But the good news of the gospel is that he's calling sinners even today. He's calling you today. Don't ignore him. Now, in a couple minutes, I just want to point us to the only place in Scripture that Jesus addresses the issue of worship personally, and that's from John 4. So go ahead and turn to John chapter 4. Now, in Mark 7 and Matthew 4, there are some quotations of Jesus. These are, these are actually quotes from the Old Testament. So John 4 is the place where Jesus gets into this himself. And the situation around it is interesting. So you probably know this section of this gospel. Um, Jesus is traveling and he is on his way um, for Galilee. And he, verse 4 says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, as followers of Christ, do we believe that there are coincidences when it comes to God? No. Um, He he upholds the world by the word of his power. Um, He's sovereign. So we know that this was no coincidence that Jesus passed through Samaria. It's no coincidence that he goes to this well and meets a specific woman. This is not a coincidence. This is God ordained. Okay? And so he's talking to this woman. He reveals that he knows her past, how many partners she's had, who she's with now. And in this conversation, he says something striking. Chapter 4, verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Did you catch that? Did you catch what he says at the end? The Father seeks people to worship him. And it's a good thing, too, because Paul already set it out that no one seeks God on their own. So if no one seeks God, God has to do the seeking, right? And he does, and we see it evidenced here. It should, it should stir our hearts and encourage us to know that the, this occasion when Christ made a direct and personal observation about worship, he wasn't speaking to religious people. He wasn't speaking to the Pharisees. He wasn't even speaking to his disciples. Who's he speaking to? A woman. Not highly regarded in the community. A woman. An adulteress. And God is telling her, Jesus is telling her who the Father is seeking. Now, his object on this journey was to seek out one of his lost sheep, to reveal himself to someone who didn't know him, and for her to wean her from the lusts of the flesh and to fill her heart with the satisfying grace of God. 
he, he talks to her about the water that she'll never have to drink again. What was his purpose in doing all of this? What was his purpose in saying this to this woman? So that she would turn and give to the Father the praise and adoration which only a saved sinner can give. That was his purpose. In the same way, Jesus came here seeking sinners, not only to save them from sin and death, but to have them drink in and enjoy the love of God that not even angels can understand. That is worship. And the remembrance of God's seeking love and Christ's redeeming blood are where it flows from. The wealth of the gospel is this. God can and will speak life into your deadness, place you into the beloved where you will be kept from now until forever, and remind you often of this gift, this treasure that you've been given. The Father, even today, is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Our hope as a church, my hope as a pastor, is that you respond the only way that you can, by grace through faith given by God. Remember, true worship is the adoration of a redeemed people occupied with God himself. May our hearts, may our lives, may our church, may our homes be occupied with God himself. There's no other way to worship the Lord. I'm going to have a word of prayer and uh, we're going to sing another song together. It's number three in your hymnals. Um, As we do this, it's a song called Worthy of Worship. As we sing this song together, may it be our heart's cry that as we reflect on what God has brought us from, the depths of what he's brought us from, that we would also remember the heights and how exalted he's lifted Jesus. And one day we'll be with him in the same way. Guys, come on up and I'm going to pray as they come up. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, you are the object of our worship. And if it's, if I'm worshiping myself, if I'm here for my benefit, rebuke me, Lord. Train me to worship you the way that you expect. You've not made yourself this enigma that we can never understand, although we won't fully. You want us to see you, to know you, to understand you. And so in our desire to worship, God, may we know you better. In our need to know you better, Lord, may it drive us to worship. God, we thank you for your love that makes this all make sense. Thank you for your justice that makes you fully God. And Lord, as we worship you now in song again, God, turn our hearts to you. In your name, amen.